Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, Sandy W, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we've got a lot coming on today's program. Mark and Hughes of Stonex in just a moment. Before we're going to get into the WOTUS back and forth. We're not going to talk about it from an agriculture perspective this morning. We're going to talk with Michael Alton, the Director of Federal Affairs at the Associated Builders and Contractors. They're also watching us very closely. He'll fill us in on their take before we take the focus global in segment three with Brian Riley, the Director of the Free Trade Institute at the National Taxpayers Union. We've seen USTR Catherine Tai testifying recently on Capitol Hill, getting a better idea of the Biden administration approach to trade. And we're going to close today's show with Emily Score, the CEO of Growth Energy in Washington, D.C., about some recent proposed rulemakings from the EPA on tailpipe emissions. So stick around for all of that. Before we get into everything there, however, we're going to turn the focus to the Southern Plains. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen blizzards in the Northern Plains. We've seen flooding in California, severe thunderstorms across the Eastern Corn Belt. But the deep Southern Plains, that bullseye of Southwest Kansas and South remains dry. Joining us now is Donna Hughes. She's a senior risk management advisor with Stonex based in Abilene, Texas. And Donna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. You know, we continue to watch the development of that drought in the Southern Plains, but we're not living in it. Donna, how brutal are our conditions down there for growers across the Southern Plains this year? You know, um, obviously, depending on uh, what area of the Southern Plains, uh, it's a different story um, for, you know, different producers. Um, right now, we're focused on uh, what's going on with the wheat crop for um, for our producers, the hard red Kansas City wheat crop. And, um, you know, up in, uh, up in uh, north of here in the Panhandle, um, you know, we've got producers that have already disastered out some acres and, um, you know, even uh, even irrigated acres, if uh, if they can't, you know, if they can't make what they need to, um, they're uh, you know they're going to be left to um, try to negotiate with elevators, maybe to roll some of those contracts over to next year. But um, certainly, it's been a very big struggle, especially up in the Panhandle, as uh, you know, there's um, there's been uh, some uh, wind events that have gone through there that have, uh, in some circumstances, has, have, uh, you know, it's been devastating to wheat acres in, in some of those areas. It has, it has absolutely been devastating. And I've just seen images, but of course you're at Abilene. And Donna, if I'm reading the drought monitor correctly, it appears that Abilene would be on the Southern extent of the worst of the drought, maybe centered a little North of, of Amarillo. Is that sort of what you're hearing from growers in your neck of the woods? Yes. Um, and, and that's kind of reflective of what we're seeing with, um, you know, uh, so far what we're seeing in, in uh, estimates for wheat production, um, you know, south of Abilene, um, in those areas, we're seeing, you know, upwards of uh, 70 bushels an acre at this time. But just north of Abilene, um, you know, we're seeing like maybe uh, 20 to 20 to 30 bushels per acre. But um, there are uh, some areas, uh, you know, between the Panhandle and Abilene that have seen some good rains um, as of late. And as we know, wheat kind of has nine lives. 
And uh, so, you know, in some of those areas, we're seeing up to 50 bushels per acre. Um, you know, the, one of the areas that we're, we've got a, a surprise on this year, as far as Texas goes, um, you know, the uh, central and southern areas of Texas, we have wheat production there as well, but um, they've had some incidences of uh, Hessian fly uh, disease and, and situation. And so um, a lot of those producers down there have, uh, have uh, gone to uh, baling alternatives. And so, um, you know, it just depends on uh, what area of Texas you're looking at. And if you're lucky, um, you've gotten the rains and, you know, you've, you've uh, been able to manage that wheat crop. But uh, I know areas of Kansas, um, you know, not, not so good, eastern Colorado and areas of Oklahoma, um, you know, just uh, very poor conditions. They are indeed. The market has not been taking notice, it would appear, at least from my perspective, Donna. But uh, this morning, we're getting some green in the wheat market today. Do you think the trade is starting to pick up on the the challenge to that wheat crop in the South? You know, I think, um, you know, we're, we're trying to keep that in focus and uh, and all. But, um, you know, there's, there's just a, a number of other issues that we have going on. You know, at this time, the traders are also having to be aware of. Um, you know, the, the Black Sea situation, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's been a hot button for a good while. And of course, you know, we've heard some rumblings out of Russia over the last couple of days that, um, you know, they're just not favorable to what they consider an extension on their May 18th deadline. And, uh, you know, we've got the, uh, the dollar index that uh, every time, you know, we have something going on with the economic data and the dollar rallies higher. Um, you know, that certainly puts a, a um, blanket on our uh, exports out of the U.S. And I think, you know, the key to hold, to a lot of this as far as getting prices higher is going to be exports. And unfortunately, you know, our competitiveness on the world market at these levels is is not all that good. And so we would have to drop lower to get some of that business. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of like half dozen or one six of the other. It is indeed. Donna, that drought that's curtailing the wheat crop right now will also likely curtail the cotton crop when they get that in the ground a little bit later on this spring. Do you expect to see the cotton market rally as those acres shrink across the Southern Plains? Well, um, you know, I'll kind of take it as an example of what we've been seeing, you know, since uh, last summer on a on a producer uh, thinking and logic. Um, you know, we've been thinking that, you know, we're going to be getting reduced acres, reduced production. And, you know, the key to it all, again, uh, part of it economics and part of it is what we're seeing out of um, USDA as far as their reporting levels. Um, you know, there's some that think that, you know, we're going to be seeing less than 10 million acres on production. And, you know, I would tend to say that we're going to, you know, be seeing less simply because the economics don't pencil out at these price levels. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been hearing from producers that they've been, you know, going to alternative crops, you know, and that, that includes areas of South Texas, um, you know, uh, Texas State overall and into the Delta. Um, you know, it, it just pencils out better on alternative crops such as uh, Milo, um, corn, soybeans, depending on what it is you're uh, able to produce.
Well, it'd be nice to get some life back into that cotton market for those producers down across the, the Southern Plains who just were, were hammered last year with that drought. Donna, real quick, before we let you go, are you hearing more optimism from cattle feeders in your neck of the woods? Oh, I, I think, uh, you know, you could say that, uh, that there's a lot of excitement going on with the cattle markets right now. You know, you have to keep in mind that, you know, cow-calf producers have, um, you know, it's been very rough, um, you know, for a few years. So I think this gives uh, them the opportunity to, to you know, make some good money. And uh, also, um, you know, producers that have cattle currently, um, certainly great prices out there. There certainly are, folks. Hopefully they can take advantage of those. We've been talking with Donna Hughes. She's a senior risk management advisor calling us from Abilene, Texas. Donna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. More AOA right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. What a great organization. Helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Powercoat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Powercoat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. Hardworking families are feeling pain at the gas pump. Fortunately, American-made ethanol provides some relief. Today, gas with 15% ethanol, called E15, is the lowest-priced fuel available. But E15 will disappear on June 1st, unless Washington acts now. Call your lawmakers today and call the White House at 202-456-1111. Tell them we need E15 this summer. We can't afford another price hike at the pump. Brought to you by the Renewable Fuels Association. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting Blindness. Together, 
We are Fighting Blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. We are going to be talking with Michael Altman from the Associated Builders and Contractors here in just a little bit, working on getting him connected right now. But before we do that, I wanted to take our focus to the other side of the world just briefly. We're going to talk about trade here in segment three with Brian Riley of the National Taxpayers Union. But we've got trade already moving the ag markets today. Two headlines coming out of China that are certainly worth watching from an ag perspective. Headline number one released first this morning. Chinese Ag Ministry has come out with a new three-year action plan. This is something the, the Chinese government's a big fan of, three- and five-year plans trying to target and map growth in an industry as it goes forward. Well, their new three-year plan had a big change, and the big change is the reduction of soybean meal in its uses of animal feed. The Chinese government, of course, has been struggling since the trade war in 2018 to secure enough supplies at global prices as they try to regrow their hog herd, and prices in the bean meal industry are weighing on the Chinese. This new plan, which remember coming from the Chinese central government, this is what they'll follow in China. This new plan proposes dropping the soy meal ratio in animal feed from 14.5%, which is where it was set in 2022. That's the Chinese guideline for including uh, soybean meal in all animal feed, predominantly, obviously, pork uh, feed. The new plan drops that by 1.5%, from 14.5% inclusion of bean meal down to 13% inclusion. And even though it's only 1.5%, it's a fairly good size change. That would reduce overall Chinese soy meal consumption by at least 3 million metric tons a year. That's according to an analyst with Donghai Futures in China. Uh, that same thing is equivalent to about 4 million metric tons of soybeans. This is huge from China's perspective. They note that this could lead them to drop their imports to 82 million tons of foreign beans by 2025. Seed makers in the country of China will be looking to use more rapeseed, sunflower seed, and synthetic protein as soybean meal substitutes. However, uh, this also means that the Chinese people would see less soy oil production, which means as the Chinese continue to compete for that crucial uh, good here in the economic chain, they're going to be looking to other Southeast Asian countries to add mo more palm oil to make up for their reduction in soybean oil. Now, the U.S. Soybean Export Council, of course, we chat with regularly here on the program. They're keeping up to date on this issue. Their chief executive, Jim Sutter, is currently in China. He was speaking at uh, an event in Beijing yesterday, and he said, quote, I think we'll see strong demand continuing. There's a limit as to how much soy can be taken out of rations. At the end of the day, the Chinese hog industry needs this soybean meal to keep their hogs growing and performing as they well, continue to recover from African swine fever, or according to some veterinarians in the country of China, prepare to battle another surge of African swine fever as we get deeper into the summer. So that's issue one. China looking around the world saying, boy, the stocks of soybeans, soybean meal are tight. We're going to recalibrate our feed industry. 
All right. Issue one, we got to be paying attention to that. Issue number two, also out of China, piggybacking on a story that we've been following since the November election of Lula da Silva as president of Brazil. It's that closer linking between China and Brazil. Uh, there was news here three weeks ago, President Lula da Silva of Brazil was planning to take a group of about 240 business and ag executives over to China in order to improve those ties and really talk specifically about agriculture and the advantages that uh, Brazilian ag can bring to China. And well, what they are finding is that the Chinese are interested. In the past, we have seen a lot of the Brazilians talking up the potential of this relationship. President Lula of China arrived, or excuse me, of Brazil arrived in China on Wednesday of this week. And this is the first time we've seen the Chinese come out and also cheerlead the idea of closer diplomatic relationships. Uh, President Lula will be meeting with Xi, and he went on to say, quote, we have an extraordinary relationship with China, a relationship that every day gets more acute and stronger. They both feel like they are going to be able to get this put together here before too very long. We'll continue to watch that story develop this integration between China and Brazil as Brazil continues to pour more investment into their agricultural production could lead to more changes moving around the world trade system. We've also got some news here. We're going to be talking about, no doubt as this goes on, meat consumption in Europe. We've heard a lot of challenges for European animal ag producers as that continent continues to crack down on GHG emissions. And what we're seeing is that that anti-meat attitude appears to be sinking into the population. Meat consumption in Germany has dropped to the lowest level since record-keeping began. That's according to Germany's Federal Information Center for Agriculture. Through 2022, per capita consumption of meat in Germany was about 115 pounds per year, and that was down uh, about three kilograms from a year before. So what is that? Six and a half pounds-ish from a year before. This is the lowest, uh, the least meat that Germans have eaten since 1989. By comparison, remember Germans eating 115 pounds of meat. Americans, we're still stepping up to the plate and putting down 224.6 pounds of meat per capita. And 55% of Germans now identify as flexitarians. That anti-meat attitude in Europe continues to spread. We're going to be speaking here about the WOTUS block in just a moment with, uh, with Michael Altman of the Associated Builders and Traders, but we're going to be talking about this case and specifically the injunction that was just issued earlier this week. The, the decision came down on Wednesday. 24 states now have an injunction against the most recent Waters of the U.S. ruling from the Biden administration. Joining us now is Michael Altman. He is the Director of Federal Regulatory Affairs here with the Associated Builders and Contractors. Michael, ABC has been watching this WOTUS issue for several years, haven't you? Hey, yes, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on today. But yes, we've been closely following this. Uh, this has been a ping pong in regulation since uh, 2015 and even earlier. It certainly has. And we talk about it a lot from the perspective of agriculture because ag covers a lot of ground, but so does contracting. Michael, why do the contractor, why is the contracting industry concerned about this WOTUS rule? Yes, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that this is a this is a flawed, burdensome, you know, overreaching rule. It's uh, another sweeping change to what is considered 
a um, regulated water under the Clean Water Act. And I mean, the biggest problem is permitting delays. Uh, even prior to the 2023 rule, we were hearing from uh, members about extreme delays to their, um, you know, important infrastructure projects. For example, you know, a, a year expected for dredge and fill permits for dock construction. We heard that from a maritime contractor. And uh, the 2023 rule just going to exacerbate those delays, not just by expanding what waters might be covered, but also just lacking clarity. Um, the, you know, 2015, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, it's that lack of clarity that I've heard from so many people in the industry about these rules. Michael, as you look out to the Sackett decision and what could come this summer, what sort of clarity would contractors like to see? What we would like to see is something closer to the uh, navigable waters protection rule that was issued um, by uh, President Trump's administration in 2020. And what that did was just establish clear, bright lines around what waters are uh, regulated. You know, traditional navigable waters and some wetlands that are directly connected to these waters, waters rather than the current approach of any uh, water that's deemed to have a significant nexus, a vague and unclear term that has been kind of uh, used and abused over the years and kind of uh, just not providing clarity to contractors and other businesses. We'd rather see something closer to that 2020 rule that uh, adopted a simple and uh, easy to understand test. And so, Michael, of course, you're going to be watching closely as that Sackett decision comes down, a decision that is based on a contractor's dispute. I mean, they're trying to build a house. What what would count as a win when we see that Sackett decision? I think something that, uh, that kind of uh, undoes the reliance on that significant nexus test is what we're hoping for, something that establishes that there needs to be more uh, clear definitions of WOTUS. So that's what we're kind of looking for from that Supreme Court case is that they'll have a ruling that states that, um, you know, not every uh, low-lying uh, spot that might have some water on your property, like in the Sackett's case, can be used to, uh, you know, I won't speak to that directly since I'm not a, you know, not a lawyer, not uh, legally involved, but would just say, you know, we're hoping for something that will provide that kind of clarity for, you know, for the Sackett's and for, uh, for all contractors across the country. Well, that's the thing. And Michael, ABC keeps up on these policy issues. For listeners who might want to see how these issues have touched builders, where can they go for more information? Sure. Um, I would stay up to date um, on our on ABC.org, on our uh, newsline section. We provide updates on any, um, you know, any of the rulings or other issues. So uh, please reach out to that and uh, we'll have more updates on this. Indeed, we will. Folks, we'll be watching for that Sackett decision from the Supreme Court of the United States. And when we do, we'll see how it could impact builders. Michael Altman, thank you so much for joining us today from the Associated Builders and Contractors. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And folks, stay with us. We're going to turn the focus to free trade here when AOA returns. Stick around. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. On the first Wednesday of every month, we get together with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for the monthly grind, a look at where that corn goes after it leaves our farm. This week, we're talking about corn's inclusion in the circular bioeconomy. We're talking with Sarah McKay and Denny Vinacotter. Sarah, what is the circular bioeconomy? Great question, Mike. So when we talk about, let's first start with bioeconomy, and essentially that is substituting fossil carbon, so think petroleum, with bio-based carbon sources from um, agriculture and forestry. So that's what we mean when we say bioeconomy, think biomass. 
think corn. And so where does corn fit in the circular bioeconomy? Think corn for bio-based plastics, corn to replace petroleum chemicals. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about industrial biotechnology. And Denny, I understand the Market Development Action Team has a quarter of a million dollars in prize money for this next Consider Corn Challenge. We just need to keep finding new homes, new uses for the corn that we continue to improve and grow. Thank you, Denny and Sarah, for joining us this week for the monthly grind. And folks, stay plugged in to ncga.com for information on that Consider Corn Challenge. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market trade action on this Friday, corn and wheat moving to the upside here with wheat now leading the way while the soy complex is showing some moderate pressure in beans and in products here as we work through Friday's trade. Corn futures diverging with spot May higher new crop December falling within four cents of the recent low, but now starting to recover a little bit. We got more announced cord sales to China on Friday morning. China buying another 15 million bushels of U.S. cord overnight, including 9.7 million bushels of old crop corn for shipment this summer. China continues to be an aggressive buyer of corn, which is possibly due to them rebuilding their reserves of ahead of any potential future conflict with the U.S., with Ukraine becoming a less reliable supplier due to the war there. That is another issue with the wheat market as Russia has come out this week saying they won't extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative unless certain concessions are met. So watching geopolitical issues closely, spring planting is continuing across much of the country. That's adding a little bit of pressure to these markets as a whole, especially in the new crop side. We look at beans and products again, mildly lower here. The calendar spread illustrating the strong demand for limited old crop supplies while the July November spread has moved back out to a dollar 66 inverse in the soy complex means i'm over in livestock a little bit of caution from traders here ahead of the weekend taking a little more profit it appears in the cattle trade even though we're seeing continued strength in cash cattle markets while the hog trade up a little bit maybe trying to finally find a bottom here across this hog market trade but that remains to be seen how we close on friday crude oil up uh, about 66 cents a barrel at last check, 82.82, with the Dow Jones down moderately. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Over the past three years in agriculture, we've seen the importance of export markets. We saw China step in, become large buyers of American pork 2020 and beyond as they were rebuilding from ASF. We saw global droughts lead to folks clamoring for American grain around the world. And this year, as exports of corn have dropped off, we've seen the market price deteriorate as well. International markets are vital for agriculture. And we're getting some more insight on how the U.S. government is approaching these international markets. Over the past month and a half, there have been several testimonies of U.S. Trade Rep. Catherine Tai before congressional hearings, and we're getting a better feel for the administration's approach to trade. Joining us to talk about those hearings now is Brian Riley. He serves as the director at the Free Trade Initiative for the National Taxpayers Union. And Brian, back in 2021, when Administrator Ambassador Tai was nominated to the U.S. Trade Rep position, she said trade is is not going to take a back seat in the Biden administration. And from your perspective, has it? Well, absolutely, it's taken a back seat, uh, unfortunately. And, and this was reflected in the hearings that you referred to. Uh, every year, the USTR comes and discusses the US trade policy agenda at the Ways and Means and Finance Committees. And uh, Ambassador Tai was subject to some pretty pointed questions from members of both parties um, asking, what the administration is doing and, and really pressing them to do more on the trade front. In the past, typically what would happen on trade policy is Congress and the administration would pass something called trade promotion authority, delegating authority from the administration to the administration to negotiate trade agreements. Um, we don't have anything like that right now. You have the Biden administration running around doing things. And um, again, members of Congress in both parties aren't very happy about being cut out of the process and really not even 100% sure exactly what's going on in some cases. Well, Brian, and that's sort of the frustration I've heard from folks connected to the world of trade here over the last couple of years is that there's just confusion about the direction we seem to be going. There had been a big focus on free trade agreements globally, but in her testimony, it doesn't sound as though Catherine Tai is enth as enthusiastic about those types of programs. What's her rationale? Well, the rhetoric from the administration and particularly from USTR um, is that they, they want a worker-centric trade policy and they feel that previous trade deals that focused on cutting tariffs has left, uh, the, those, those changes have left certain parts of the population behind. I think they view that as, as, as unpopular and maybe bad policy. Um, certainly, if you look at public opinion polls, uh, most Americans are tend to be tend to be more supportive of trade than than scared of it. So I, I question the entire premise of of um, what the Biden administration is is basing um, their decisions on. But but they're doing a couple of things. One is they're pursuing what are called framework agreements. They have an IPEF Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which uh, are negotiations which don't have anything to do with tariff cuts. Um, they have to do with just more broader economic relations and I think the administration's goal is, well, we can negotiate some agreement and since there are no tariff cuts involved, we don't have to run it through Congress. It can be an executive agreement. And as, as you can uh, probably guess, a lot of members of Congress aren't very thrilled with that approach. Uh, the, Constitution, the Constitution says Congress has authority for for trade policy and for tariffs and for taxes. So they wanna be uh, intimately involved in, in, in these negotiations. That's just one way in which the, the Biden administration's approach is, is different than um, really what, what we've been used to 
for the, for the most part, since the end of World War II, Congress and the administration working together. Brian, I'm glad you brought that up. And you mentioned TPA, that Trade Promotion Authority. Now, as I think back over relatively recent history, Presidents Obama and President Trump, both, if I remember correctly, had that sort of TPA authority. Has the Biden administration requested it at all? No, absolutely not. And this goes back to your original question, um, Court, and my response is, no, the administration has put trade on the back burner. And this is a, a perfect example of this. They haven't gone to, to Congress and said, we want trade promotion authority. We want your, your endorsement to go negotiate deals with other countries. And so um, as a result, anything that they might negotiate, uh, there's, there's no guarantee Congress will go along with it. Um, or there could be a struggle between Congress and the administration over exactly what authority um, the Biden administration has if Congress hasn't specifically past trade promotion authority because usually this is something congress doesn't just come out come up with on its own it's working closely with the administration to make sure that their negotiating priorities align um the administration doesn't want to ex ex expend any political capital on that uh, because they have uh, other issues that i think are, are higher priority to them um and as a result trades we're on the back burner while uh, England is joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, other countries around the world are moving forward with agreements, and we're, we're I think, going to miss some opportunities uh, as a result. Brian, you mentioned the tariffs there. That was a huge issue, kind of exploded during that 2018 trade war with China, put many, many tariffs on goods coming into the U.S. from China. And then China retaliated by putting goods, tariffs on goods coming from the U.S. into that country. And here just today, we've heard news about China and Brazil growing closer. How impactful are those tariffs? Are those tariffs on Chinese goods coming into America still in place? And are they changing the global trade routes? They are in place. Now, legally, when, when, when we use those, those tariffs were imposed under Section 301 of U.S. trade law. Um, really, the idea was that we wouldn't use that trade law when, when the World Trade Organization came into effect because we would have the WTO to arbitrate trade disputes and to maybe have, have a stronger ability to encourage change in other countries. Section 301 tariffs are unilaterally imposed by the United States. Um, in this case, they were imposed by the Trump administration. They're supposed to expire after four years. Um, however, there is a, a, a provision in the law that allows those tariffs to be extended beyond four years. And what the Biden administration has done is, is temporarily extended the tariffs while they engage in some fact-finding and, and decide what to do moving forward. I would argue that every analysis that has been done of the Section 301 tariffs has shown that they haven't caused any changes in China with regards to their economic policies that we wanted to see changed. They retaliated against us by putting tariffs on our products. Um, we're driven closer to competitors like Brazil, as, as you pointed out. And once we lose those relationships, those don't come back overnight. And, and certainly most of the talk here in D.C. seems to be on the side of, well, we need to maybe even have more tariffs instead of less tariffs. And um, uh, whether you're, you're on the import side or you're a consumer uh, or, or you're an exporter, those are the things that could really add to your costs and add to the economic disruption. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't hear the administration talk much about uh, the farm 
and agricultural communities when they talk about trade policy. They tend to focus on these, uh, this idea that, oh, we've lost or we need to do something different. Uh, where, where, whereas if, if you're a farmer or a rancher, um, we know both from the positive aspect of the benefits of trade and we know from the, the Section 301 tariff war, the risks that are involved, uh, that if, if we stop supplying some of these markets there, there are other, may, maybe not quite as efficient or, or productive, but there are plenty of other people around the world willing to step in and take our place. Brian, as we think longer term, the direction of global trade, the use of America of that 301 section to put up some tariffs and to exempt uh, criticism of those tariffs here in the international order, are we seeing other countries try to apply that same line of thinking to their trade policies now as well? Well, I think that is a big danger in the long run, uh, that if the U.S. decides, hey, we're just going to go it alone and, and, and um, proceed unilaterally to do what we think is best, then other countries will follow suit. So, so far, that hasn't really happened. Europe, in particular, has been pretty strong about wanting to try and strengthen the WTO and, and, and not give up on that um, as, a, as a possible way to, to move forward. Um, the administration also, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, has uh, subsidies for electric, electric vehicles. And some of the there were some limitations on the ability of Europe, uh, Japan to participate in those subsidies because we don't have free trade agreements with them. And so uh, under the law, the subsidies are applied to countries we have free trade agreements with. So now the Biden administration is kind of negotiating these mini agreements. They're not M-I-N-I, many agreements um, that are, they're not broad-based free trade agreements, but, but they, they want to try and get uh, the EU and Japan qualified as free trade agreement partner countries, because those, those countries are angry at us for cutting them out of, of, of these deals. Um, and, and particularly with the EU, we have disputes over digital trade and tax policy. We still have section 232 national security tariffs um, on steel from our allies, which drives up the cost of everything made with steel, ranging from farm implements to machinery to fences, you know, to, to, to you name it. And I think it's time for us to, to get rid of some of those policies. China is, is trickier for obvious reasons, but um, there's no reason for us to continue having tariffs on, on our allies, who we, not just for economic reasons, but we want to be able to work with them more closely going forward. Absolutely. Some folks aren't our allies, and it's good to have our friends on our side if we need to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Folks, we've been talking with Brian Riley, the director of the Free Trade Institute at the National Taxpayers Union. And Riley, Brian, you write about these issues a lot. Where can folks go to keep up with the work you do on trade? Uh, we, we're, we're the nation's oldest taxpayer organization. We've been around for about 50 years, and our website, ntu.org, uh, tell you everything about our organization and uh, on trade policy and otherwise. Fantastic, folks. NTU.org. We've been talking with Brian Riley. And Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, about some pending rules from the EPA on tailpipe emissions. Stay here for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. 
and your intestines to keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Powercoat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Powercoat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. On the first Wednesday of every month, we get together with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for the monthly grind to look at where that corn goes after it leaves our farm. This week, we're talking about corn's inclusion in the circular bioeconomy. We're talking with Sarah McKay and Denny Vinacotter. Sarah, what is the circular bioeconomy? Great question, Mike. So when we talk about, let's first start with bioeconomy. And essentially, that is substituting fossil carbon, so think petroleum, with bio-based carbon sources from um, agriculture and forestry. So that's what we mean when we say bioeconomy, think biomass. Think corn. And so where does corn fit in the circular bioeconomy? Think corn for bio-based plastics, corn to replace petroleum chemicals. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about industrial biotechnology. And Denny, I understand the Market Development Action Team has a quarter of a million dollars in prize money for this next Consider Corn Challenge. We just need to keep finding new homes, new uses for the corn that we continue to improve and grow. Thank you, Denny and Sarah, for joining us this week for the Monthly Grind. And folks, stay plugged in to ncga.com for information on that Consider Corn Challenge. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. 
With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. As spring gets a little closer into the calendar, farmers across the country are gearing up to plant those crops that will become the biofuels of 2024. But in Washington, D.C. right now, biofuels policy advocates have their hands full with work coming out of Washington, D.C. Joining us now to talk about several issues in that industry is CEO of Growth Energy, Emily Score. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. I wanted to get you on first to talk about a new proposal from the US, excuse me, from the EPA that would govern tailpipe emissions for light duty vehicles. This is starting in 2027. Emily, what is EPA looking at with regard to this new proposal? Well, so yes, EPA introduced this proposal and it's a very aggressive reduction in tailpipe emissions, which is a good thing, but the very transparent intent here is to accelerate the adoption of battery electric vehicles. So we support the goals of decarbonizing transportation. We support cleaner emissions. That's exactly what ethanol achieves. But the rule itself is highly problematic because what the agency has done is they've picked one technology and they've said of all the technology and innovation taking place in energy and automobiles right now, we're gonna pick one and that's the pathway. And in doing so, the agency utterly neglected to consider the role of biofuels, the role we play today in cleaning up tailpipe emissions and the and the improved role that we can play in the future with a greater use of biofuels. So that's really what makes this, this rule so problematic. And so what would Growth Energy like to see in the final rule when this comes out from EPA? How would you like to see it changed? Well, several things. So first and foremost, they, they fail to consider the, the fact that the majority of the cars on the road well into 2040 are going to continue to be the internal combustion engine. So let's focus on how we clean up those tailpipe emissions. So talk about the role of E15 or an even higher blend of ethanol and what we can do in terms of achieving cleaner emissions, cleaner and, and reduced greenhouse gas emissions. For example, just move to E15. If we drove as a nation on a 15% blend of ethanol, that's up to a 50% reduction in particulate matter coming out of the tailpipe. And that's what the EPA is trying to achieve, but fails to consider. And not only that, Emily, but of course we can't even get E15 around for the summer in 2023, according to the EPA, but I understand growth energy is working on that issue as well. What's the outlook for having that freedom available to consumers this summer? Well, I'm gonna be optimistic because 
people in Washington understand just how important E15 is to keep fuel affordable and to keep that engine running cleanly. So because of a greatly outdated regulation, we are not allowed to, to purchase E15 in the summer in most parts of the country. Uh, last year, the president waived that rule and said, yes, we're gonna make sure that E15 is available because he was recognizing it's affordable, it keeps gas prices down and it's better for the environment. So we've been having a lot of conversations with those same decision makers here in Washington and would hope that they would come out in the next few weeks with a similar waiver, um, giving consumers continued access to that really important high value fuel choice. On both of these issues, Emily, whether we're talking to the EPA about tailpipe emissions or we're just talking to, to Congress folks about the importance of B15, does Growth Energy have any tools farmers can use to get that story out there, reach out to these folks and get those comments to, to where they can be, make an impact? Thank you for asking. Yes, we've got an E15 Now campaign running right now. If you go to the growthenergy.org website, um, you will be able to contact your, your elected official and may help reinforce for them just how understand it is that we've got to have these strong policies in place. All right, Emily. So that's what's happening on the regulatory, on the legislative side. But there's also biofuels battling battles brewing in the courts, I should say. Looking back to those small refinery exemptions that were granted here five, six years ago, I understand we're, we're starting to see some movement from the EPA. Bring us up to speed. Are those small refiners who were exempted from their RFS requirements being held to the fire? Well, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. So the good news, this administration has been, been really clear and done a fantastic job in shutting down small refinery exemptions and saying, nope, that you're an obligated party. Our intent is to blend more biofuel. So they've stopped issuing the waivers. We sued EPA this week because in, in reversing some decisions from the Trump administration, where the Trump administration granted 34 exemptions, totaling 1.6 billion gallons of ethanol that wasn't blended. EPA said, all right, you know what? We've changed our mind, you are obligated. But then here's what they did. They said, you know what though? Because we're talking about a couple of years ago, never mind, you're off the hook, you don't have to comply. So we are suing the agency for failing to make sure that if you're obligated, you actually have to comply all the way through to the end. All right. And of course, when we get into the courts, uh, Emily, these things can be time consuming. But do we have an idea for a rough timeline as to when we might get some certainty on this issue? Well, yes and no. I mean, we just filed our opening brief this week. So EPA has to reply. It's going to take several months as it works its way through the courts. But what's really important is kind of the precedent that we continue to, to stress, which is if there's any way that the agency is not enforcing the RFS, we are going to hold them accountable including, unfortunately, through the use of litigation. When we think about the precedent being set, and I'm glad you mentioned that, this EPA decision exempting these smaller refiners permanently, but also saying, no, you are required, would that persist onto future administrations? If SREs come back, could the industry use this to say, no, we know they're, they're obligated parties because of this EPA ruling? Well, yes. Yeah. So what we are, we're, we're looking for consistency. And that's one of the reasons that, that we have to sue. And so the language they've used here is alternative compliance. But, but really what they're doing is they're facilitating the un, unlawful noncompliance. So our message is, if you have an obligation and whether that is enforced, you know, ahead of time or, or retroactively, you've got to actually comply and you've got to blend those gallons or, or purchase the credit to show that you've complied. Emily, before we let you go, you have a lot of resources on the website at uh, at Growth Energy. One more time, tell our listeners where they can go to get that and keep up to date on, on the world that's moving quickly in biofuels. Growthenergy.org, and you'll, it'll be very easy to find our call to action portal. 
Fantastic, folks. Get on there. Keep up to date. If you are a producer who supplies a biofuels facility, keep up on this because it definitely matters to your bottom line. Our thanks to Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, for joining us today. Emily, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And folks, tune in on Monday. We'll talk weather with John Baranek. We'll also get a look at the markets and we'll talk the cattle industry with Brent Kenzie from RCAF. Tune in next week to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. On the first Wednesday of every month, we get together with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for the monthly grind to look at where that corn goes after it leaves our farm. This week, we're talking about corn's inclusion in the circular bioeconomy. We're talking with Sarah McKay and Denny Vinacotter. Sarah, what is the circular bioeconomy? Great question, Mike. So when we talk about, let's first start with bioeconomy. And essentially that is substituting fossil carbon, so think petroleum, with bio-based carbon sources from um, agriculture and forestry. So that's what we mean when we say bioeconomy, think biomass. Think Think corn. And so where does corn fit in the circular bioeconomy? Think corn for bio-based plastics, corn to replace petroleum chemicals. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about industrial biotechnology. And Denny, I understand the Market Development Action Team has a quarter of a million dollars in prize money for this next Consider Corn Challenge. We just need to keep finding new homes, new uses for the corn that we continue to improve and grow. Thank you, Denny and Sarah, for joining us this week for the Monthly Grind. And folks, stay plugged in to ncga.com for information on that Consider Corn Challenge. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.